You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our sermon text for today is Jonah chapter 3. We'll read that from the Pew Bible, which is page 775, if you have that this morning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, And he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we do come before you as we open your word together. We pray now that the preaching of your word would be your word. For the sake and glory of your son Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. The year was 1999, some 21 years ago. I was a junior in college at Sanford University here in Birmingham. My declared major was sports medicine and exercise science with the intent to go to med school. The desire being to focus on pediatrics and orthopedics. I had just come from a student gathering of worship and the word and I was sitting on my bed in a mental wrestling match. My roommate, who was a great friend as well as a pretty straight talker, had just asked me a question that I could have easily taken as a joke but it was rooted in great seriousness. He said, when are you going to surrender and answer your call into ministry? To which I quickly responded, never, because I don't want to be in ministry. I want to be a doctor. As you might can tell, I never made it to med school. In fact, organic chemistry too was the proverbial nail in the coffin on that desire. In our passage today, Jonah has attempted to run far away from God in this mental wrestling match that he has engaged with him in the belly of a fish. His attempt finds him, of course, being tossed overboard in a ship in the midst of a massive storm. His life is spared by God, who doesn't allow him to drown in death, but it might only be considered the next best thing to be swallowed by a gigantic fish and taken to the depths of the ocean for what one might call a three-day reflection retreat. After his reflection time, 
and what we saw a few weeks ago in Jonah 2 as a half-hearted at best repentance, God has commanded the fish to spit him out onto the shore. Now, while no doubt Jonah, who is sitting on the beach that day, is probably taking it all in that he's still alive, the Lord comes to him in Jonah chapter 3 in the same way that he did in Jonah chapter 1. He tells him to go to Nineveh. Jonah, you've wrestled long enough. You've failed the organic chemistry exam. It's time to go and do as I've asked. He finds himself in surrender. The scene begs the question for you and for me, what are we hanging on to that needs to be surrendered in order for God to use us to our fullest potential? Is there something in your life that you've dug your heels in so deep with God that it will require a three-day retreat at the bottom of an ocean for him to get his point across? Jonah had to go through some heart and attitude change. God had given him a call to go and to do, and like a child, he refused. A child who's been told to go clean their room, but he says no, and they run out the door instead. Clearly, as a parent, you want the child to obey, but there's a heart issue that must be addressed concerning obedience before we can expect the child to do as we ask. Three days in the gut of a fish will certainly provoke some heart change. What we see in Jonah is there is a willingness to go that was not present at the beginning of Jonah 1. Now, it wasn't much of a a willingness. There was still some resistance, but at this point, Jonah is broken enough that he's willing to follow what the Lord's directives are. It's not as though he was sold out for the idea. He wasn't gung-ho to go to Nineveh, but the instructions have been made clear to him. Go to Nineveh and preach repentance. Jonah, even if you don't think they deserve it, even if you don't think they will respond, even if in your heart of hearts you don't want to do it, it must be done so that I, the Lord, may show mercy and grace to these people. It is a child who then stomps to their room to clean it, even though they don't want to, but they're willing because they know they have no choice. This is a different Jonah from what we saw in chapter 1. It is clear Jonah, while we will find next week, still has a lot of work to do, and he's not at all excited about what's happening, is willing to go. But what happens next in the narrative is simply how we might describe a God thing. The work of the word begins to to happen in the city of Nineveh. Jonah has gone, and he has again made clear that he's not going to put much effort into this call, and so his message is at best unenthusiastic and void of emotion. He walks in just a day's journey into Nineveh, and he says this, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's no fancy illustrations to draw people's attention. There's no suggestion of hope. There's no call to repentance, no promise of God's mercy, just 40 days, and then comes destruction. However, as dry and stale as that sermon might be, in the same way that the Lord worked through Jonah's half-hearted repentance, he will work in Jonah's half-hearted proclamation. We find the grace of a sovereign God. In verse 5, the people believed and repented, It says there, from the king down to the least of them, put on the sackcloth and ashes. What a miracle of God's sovereign grace. 
The success of God had not come through Jonah's charming, winsome ways. They have come through the work of God in his sovereignty to bring about his plan of redemption. I believe it was Rich Mullins who said so eloquently, God chose to use a donkey in the Old Testament. When he chooses to use you, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Certainly it wasn't Jonah's words, but praise God, he works in spite of Jonah's efforts. Praise God, he works in spite of me and works in spite of you. In Jonah 3, if it shows us anything, it is that even in our half-hearted attempts to convey the grace and mercies of God, he can draw men to himself and accomplish his great work. This reality of a sovereign God should affect us, and I want to hone in on three ways that I think it should affect us, that the scriptures teach us. One, a sovereign God means that I don't get to be in charge, nor do I have to be in charge. Remember John chapter 4 in the New Testament, the story of the Samaritan woman, a very familiar passage. At the beginning of John chapter 4, you see the reason why the disciples and Jesus have to go to Samaria. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. One thing you have to know about the story is that Jews and Samaritans hated one another. They didn't associate together In fact, a Jew like Jesus and the disciples, if they were to travel from Judea to Galilee, they would do all in their power to avoid going through Samaria, even if it meant adding a day's journey to the trip. They didn't have to pass through Samaria, but for the fact that Jesus was in control. He had an encounter that must take place for the sake of his kingdom. Our surrender of what we want is a cry of humility that says, I trust the Lord Jesus Christ to be the one directing my next steps, even if it makes me uncomfortable. You can bet that those disciples were extremely uncomfortable walking through the city of Samaria. But Jesus had an appointment that had to take place. Which leads to the second thing. A sovereign God is a God who can be trusted. Proverbs 23, 26, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Jesus shows his ultimate trust in the Father when he prayed in the garden before facing the cross, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. In other words, in this moment where I'm about to endure the most physical and mental pain a human body can possibly bear, I trust in you and the plan that we are united in to bring about redemption of the world. Let that be a reassurance to you that no matter what your circumstances might want to dictate, the sovereign God who worked through the meager words of Jonah to bring about salvation to the people of Nineveh is the same God who is working in your life. He's not shocked by the things going on, nor is he somehow knocked off of his throne by our circumstances. No, quite the contrary, he continues to be the God to be trusted. Thirdly, a sovereign God is a God worthy of worship. It was no wonder that Jesus said in Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. 
The men of Nineveh only heard one message, and it was that of judgment. They had only one bitter messenger who appeared to hate them. Yet they repented in sackcloth and ashes. They took on a posture of worship because they encountered the presence of a living God. Jesus is saying in Matthew 12 to the Pharisees, it would do well, you would do well to take on the same posture before the one who stands before you because I am the greater one than Jonah. The beautiful work of the word of God is that as we gaze upon his saving work, we find that Jonah paled in comparison to the one who would come after him, Jesus Christ our Lord. In a familiar scene with the, after the resurrection of Jesus, we find the disciples gathered not all of them believing. And Thomas, being the most vocal of them, says in John chapter 20, verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Jesus appeared just two verses later, telling Thomas to indeed put your hand in my side. Touch the nail-scarred hands, Thomas. Thomas often gets a bad rap. He's affectionately called Doubting Thomas in most places. But Thomas becomes a very different person when he encounters the resurrected sovereign Jesus. In verse 28, if you were to keep reading, you would see that Thomas made this exclamation, My Lord and my God. An entire sermon could be done on those words of Thomas, but it is suffice to say that Doubting Thomas became worshiping Thomas in that moment. When we understand as the Ninevites and as Thomas does the sovereignty of God, our posture changes to be that of worship and awe. When we are not worthy of grace and mercy, but through the saving work of Jesus we freely receive it, it leads us to repentance and renewal. I told you a piece of my story as I opened. I had run from Nineveh long enough But Jesus had a greater purpose. How is the sovereign God looking to work in you? It is unlikely that many of you listening and watching are called to be vocational ministers. So where does that leave you? As a doctor, a lawyer, a school teacher, the stay-at-home mom or the retiree, the question is, where or what is your Nineveh? Where has the Lord positioned you to proclaim the message of the gospel so that scales might fall from the eyes of the hearer, hearts might be drawn to the lordship of Jesus, repentance might come, and new life might begin? The more we wrestle with the call of the gospel, the more we cannot run from it, and the more we do not want to run from it. The call to surrender our comforts, desires, and prejudices is just as much in front of us today as it was for Jonah towards the Ninevites. May we not have to be swallowed by a giant fish for the sovereign God to move us in the direction of the call on our lives. May we be quick to surrender to see the sovereign hand of the Almighty God working in and through us today. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.